1: Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Sean Atkinson. Today we have a Halloween special, our top five malware, scariest malware. And here with us today to discuss this really cool topic is Randy Rose, Senior Director of Cyber Threat Intelligence. Randy, welcome to the show. Hi,
0: thanks for having me.
1: Thanks for being here. Randy, could you give our audience just a brief uh, uh, bio on yourself?
0: Oh, I'll try to be brief. <laughs> um, I have uh, I've been in this field now for oh gosh, it's embarrassing. Um, coming up on twenty years. Uh, most I kind of started really on the IT admin side and pivoted into security. I actually was uh, against going to the to the security side of things for a little while. I was a little apprehensive, uh, and then uh, probably sometime around. I think it was right around 2008, 2009, I kind of pivoted in, into more of a security focus, starting really on, on pen testing uh, and security uh, audits. I worked for New York State, uh, the Office of the State Comptroller for a while. That's actually how I got introduced to, to CIS and the MSI SAC was around 2010 through my work with the state. Um, then I left uh, New York, went down, worked with the DOD for, for a few years um, before, actually the Navy specifically, uh, I want That's kind of how I pivoted into the the cyber threat intelligence field. Uh, worked to stand up the first, uh, intel, cyber intel driven um, organization or department for the for the U.S. Navy, and then uh, spent a couple of years in Germany working a joint DOD mission before coming back to New York and joining the CIS team in the middle of COVID nineteen in June. I started here June twenty twenty.
1: Yeah, and it's been great. You've. Um really added capability in the cyber threat intelligence space and it's great to have that experience right and so as we now talk about the the top five scariest malware we you know we've reviewed and we, we thought of uh, some we actually i think at the end we have a little bonus in terms of probably the granddaddy of them all um but we'll get into that randy i'd like to start with um stuxnet i really want to get your thoughts on what has become really considered um, the first known cyber weapon?
0: Uh, what are your what are your
1: perspectives? Why is this so scary?
0: Well, you know, I think for Stuxnet, I, I think the real reason it was scary was because it was, you know, as you said, the cyber weapon piece. It was really the first time that, as a as a field, we said, you know, cyber can be used to create physical effects in the real world so and particularly it was it was really a precedent that was set with stuxnet because this was this happened during a period of peacetime so it was you know launching a, essentially a cyber weapon during a period of peacetime and i know you know the justification behind it was really to to help maintain the peace in particular but you know what kind of precedent does that set when you when you launch a cyber weapon a completely coded weapon all weapons before this had some kind of physical component to them but in this case, you launch something that built entirely out of code that has a physical effect in the real world um, against really against a, another nation. That's that's what's you know really so scary about Stuxnet. I think it was really precedent setting, uh, and it, and you know ultimately it did lead to some other capabilities today that I think are probably much scarier than Stuxnet in in their actual impact. But Stuxnet was the first.
1: It was. It set a new. Really, for me, this new perspective on, um, like you say, I think the interaction with the physical world, right? Code was, you know, this it's ephemeral. It's in this space that doesn't really affect us. You know, we, we interact with it through these devices. And then when you see these devices, uh, again, the programmable logic controllers, the SCADA, uh, obviously in some cases, these were air-gapped even, but being able to traverse that through a USB flash drive, Um, and be able to target systems of high sensitivity, especially in the, the realm, I thought it raised the bar on industrial control system security. It was, this is what could happen if you're not paying attention. And it also, from my perspective, and I really want to get your thoughts here, is it really did track to those with the time, the resources, and the patience could really have a massive effect on... You know the the underlying industrial control system. it was you know that that took me back a little bit. What are your thoughts there?
0: Well, yeah, I think you're right. And you know the, the air gap piece is crucial here because you know today we're seeing more and more control systems and critical infrastructure that's you know that air gap is is shrinking. It's not across the board, but uh, you know there's definitely a change in the way that where we have systems connected you know there's a, a merging of kind of o, what we call OT operational technology and IT but historically and at the time that stuxnet was launched there you know those systems were kept wholly separate even the monitoring systems the computer based syst- you know that you mentioned scada so those those supervisory control systems that reported data out to operators those still, even though they were wired together internally, they were gapped from the internet. So there was no internet, you know, connectivity in those environments. And what Stuxnet was really interesting because, you know, there was this entire chain of events that happened. There were specific individuals that were targeted as you know potentially you know, weak uh, in terms of security practices. You know, that they were essentially an intelligence tradecraft of targeting was applied in this. Uh, scenario, where it was like, these are the individuals we want to go after. They're the most likely to infect the system because they have poor security practices. So if we can infect their personal devices, which, you know, then they will go plug in to this network, then we have our way in. So it was much more complex in terms of, you know, it wasn't just, Hey, here's the IP of the system. Let's see what's vulnerable and, and attack it. There was this whole series of events and it was you know carefully planned out over a, a significant period of time and you're right i mean that's it's probably the scariest part of it as you know how deliberate uh, of a of an attack it was and it really was a game changer in that sense
1: no absolutely i also just uh, as we go into really our next one is the the combination of all these elements coming together to execute it was you know, orchestrated in such a way as you're, you've got these modules, you've got these zero days all being combined, targeted, as you say, against specific individuals that could cross that air gap. And then really utilizing that capability was, um, well, I think that the, the impressive portion of that was being able to apply that trade craft in such a way. And then not only to get the intelligence of the underlying PLC, the model. And the underlying software that was being used in those uh, centrifuges, um, you know, that that was uh, you know another level. It wasn't just targeting any system that had you know in this particular range. It was focused at a specific target. You know, it was like the, uh, uh, the the targeted attack to a specific individual Siemens system was um, uh, that for me took again. You know, I've talked about levels. It was just that the the levels that were created here. Um, I really think have set a new precedent of uh, of what we're seeing in uh, well in your world of threat and intelligence. Is that right? Is that a, a good perspective too in this space?
0: Well, I, yeah. I mean, I definitely think that from a complexity standpoint, it's not often that you see an attack that leverages so many unknown mm-hmm. vulnerabilities or let you know exploits. What well, we we call them, you know, zero day exploits. I know most people are probably familiar with that terminology now, but it's, just to explain it. Uh, for folks who aren't familiar essentially what it means is there's a an exploit against a vulnerability that's not widely known it's not known to the manufacturers or the developers of, of software uh, or the engineers behind certain systems at the time that it's exploited um so the zero day concept is that there there have been zero days in which uh, a a victim or a target could have put a, a a fix in place a control in place so in in Stuxnet i th- if I re- recall correctly, I think there was four or more zero-day exploits embedded within that attack. Which you know, when you when you talk about just sheer capacity, the amount of time it takes to to identify a vulnerability and then build exploit code against that vulnerability, you know, it's not just time. It's it's in you know, one person is not doing this. This is a team of of people probably working hours and hours and hours for weeks on end to develop one exploit, let alone four that you. Put package together uh, to add into this, you know, this kind of targeting package. Uh, Again, going after, like you mentioned, those very specific PLCs associated with that Siemens controller. Yeah, it's it's such a unique capability to do that. It's definitely not something that we see today. Typically, if if we see one zero day exploit, you know, we're we're you know, interested and shocked, and doing research and trying to do what we can to to wrap our minds around it. But you know, imagine an attack that has four of those. Yeah, it's really unbelievable. And it, you know, there's a lot of credit goes, I think, to the to the researchers who discovered it. Um, there was a, it was actually a, initially I want to say it was a it was a European team that found the initial uh, activity, but the folks who actually reverse engineered the code were from Symantec. And one of them was uh, a gentleman in Ireland, uh, who's become quite famous now uh, because of all the work he did. So his name is Liam O'Murku. and you know he's looking at this, you know, reversing what he's seeing and, and finding that you know, he's discovering that these are zero-day exploits. And as he starts to kind of peel the onion back, he finds that this is you know a very targeted attack against a very specific environment, going after industrial control systems, these Siemens controllers that we've never seen before. So I think for him, you know, it was really scary because you know, he's obviously peeling this back and going, I think this is a, a state-sponsored attack and now I'm in the middle of it. Right. So I, th- I think that's, you know, from his perspective, that was probably, uh, you know, just flop sweat and, you know, what do you do? <laughs> it's just panicking. I, I couldn't imagine being in his in his shoes when he's discovering this stuff.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, peeling back the onion of that and then... Oh, there's a zero day. This is what, well, oh, there's another, oh, there's another, and look at what it's targeting. You know, it's, yeah, uh, that must have been, uh, again, all, uh, you know, credit to him for his uh, capability, really, in this space. Um, in order to do that. Now, one of the things that I wanted to transition to in this is the kind of the packaged approach and utilizing exploits as part of different campaigns. So that brings us on to our next one, Randy, and that's Eternal Blue. And we've seen this in WannaCry, Petra, Not Petra, and multiple others. Um, does that make sense in terms of now we're starting to see these uh, malware exploits being utilized in different packages because of their potential and because of uh, really the effect that they can have on systems? What are your thoughts in that space?
0: Yeah, I think you know for Eternal Blue, it's interesting because that was you know obviously the kind of the history behind that was uh, it was leaked uh, by a, a group of well, I guess there's different interpretations of how it happened, but essentially it was it was uh, exploits that were developed supposedly by the NSA um, a group within them specifically called the equation group and that was leaked uh, by by a group of folks called the shadow brokers and once that was leaked what was interesting with eternal blue is the vulnerabilities that it targeted were, had actually had patches in place um, at the time that eternal blue was leaked but uh, there's a significant, Gap between when uh, a, a fix comes out, whether it's a you know a patch to address a software vulnerability or a new version of something, there's this huge gap, this time gap between when that stuff gets released and when the average organization actually implements those fixes. So Eternal Blue was still, even though it had been, I want to say something like a year since the the patch had been released, the fix had been released. There were still this, you know, massive amount of organizations that were vulnerable to that exploit. So, you know, from a from the perspective of an attacker who's looking to to grab the latest exploit and put that into their code to give them an advantage, there were still a lot of victims, uh, you know, potential targets, I should say, not victims, but potential targets out there in the world. And we saw that specifically because Eternal Blue ended up in, you mentioned Petcha Not Petcha in WannaCry. Right. And WannaCry was, at the time, I think, probably the most widespread ransomware event that had occurred at that time. It had spread, I mean, something like 200,000 devices worldwide, you know, over 150 different countries ravaged some some critical networks in the U.S., in Canada. Ireland was hit particularly hard. Um, Poland had a, a the Polish uh, financial industry was ravaged by WannaCry. Um, so it's kind of just a really interesting, I think, a really interesting case where the, those packaged exploits, like you were talking about, can be leveraged. They don't have to be leveraged specifically by the the folks who develop them. Once they get out in the wild, they're picked up by everybody. Um, and in WannaCry's case, you know that was tied back to uh, state actors, uh, a group called Lazarus Group, which is a, a state-aligned uh, group uh, of North Korean actors, and Petya not Petya's. Kind of, there's debates on exactly who that was aligned to, but essentially Russian criminal and/or Russian state actors. So you know, you end up in a situation where, you know, there's there's criminals, criminal groups that are leveraging these exploits. There's state-sponsored actors that are leveraging these exploits, um, and basically everybody in between.
1: Absolutely. Just a, a quick question on the. Um... The evolution of these, and as you know, as we've gone through our own uh, physical pandemic, is there an element of viriology where you can see mutations of, let's say, eternal blue, and then its incorporation into different um, campaigns, as it were, and modifications to that? Is that something uh, that's tracked? Could you maybe give a perspective there on on the uh, evolution of these particular exploits, and then their utilization over time?
0: Sure. Yeah. I, I don't know that I would say the exploits themselves are. Um, or what evolved necessarily because once a once an exploit is crafted a lot of times the exploit itself will stay the same but what we tend to see is the the evolution of um, associated kind of packages of of malware and what they use over time so you'll see say for example um, well, I, well I can actually use an example of Uh, we were talking about um, Stuxnet and some of the things that kind of came out of that or were aligned as a result of that, right? Stuxnet was very specific, but there were a number of different, the evolution of of malware that happened after Stuxnet. You could argue that Triton is a direct descendant of Stuxnet. Um, Flame and Dooku, direct descendants of Stuxnet. Um, InDestroyer, which is also known as Crash Override, uh, a direct descendant in a way, right? So so, what we tend to see is an attack that's successful, whether it's specific to a, a given vulnerability or the way pa- uh, exploits are packaged together um, or the impact that, you know, the types of systems that you go after. The evolution can be kind of really in any of those areas. What's interesting about some of the ones, like, say, for example, um, Triton, we saw Stuxnet targeted the um, centrifuges themselves. Triton took it to a ne- the next level where it targeted the safety systems in chemical plants, and that was really, you know, from an evolution evolutionary standpoint, we kind of accept Stuxnet and the targeting of centrifuges because it's not, it's scary, but it's not harmful necessarily to the human, whereas Triton, when you're going after those safety systems, that's deliberately harmful to people, those safety systems are there to keep people alive. So, you know, the evolution in terms of targeting and, and kind of the scariness factor there. Um, I think we see a lot of that um, with Flame and Dooku, You know, those were ones where it looks like the same developers. Some of the, you know, same code that was in Stuxnet appeared to be in Flame, uh, but you know, the, the programming language changes a little bit, or um, the target changes a little bit. So, you know, we see a lot of stuff like that. I think over time, um, and it, we've even seen changes where you know, uh, capabilities that were used for uh, something that we would think is a very targeted type of attack is then used later for something else, right? So, WannaCry historically used for ransomware, but it wouldn't be impossible to leverage that same exploit that powered WannaCry in a non-ransomware associated attack. Something that's really used more for espionage, for example, because you know the the exploit specifically for Eternal Blue went after uh, vulnerabilities in. SMB, which is Server Message Block, that's really the for Microsoft systems. That that's what powers file sharing, right? Right, sharing of uh, shared access to files, uh, file services, print services, things like that. So you know, obviously, going after something that's designed to help share across computers, the the ability to use that in a wide variety of attacks is you know very possible.
1: Definitely, definitely. No, that's fantastic. It's good to see the insight then of of how this type of um, exploit can be utilized across, as you are saying, multiple areas. And again, the scariest part of that for me is, you know, to your point that you initially made was the, the patching uh, against these types of uh, vulnerabilities. If that's not done, you know, from an internal operational perspective, you know, you're leaving yourselves open to these exploits that obviously, um, you know, WannaCry and others have had massive impact and hopefully raises that awareness. But it not always happens, you know, Randy, and it, it becomes, uh, you know, there's your weakest link and it's targeted and you didn't even know, you know, and uh, now you're subject to, you know, crypto mining and uh, malicious uh, other capabilities that these things bring with them uh, as part of their package, right? So it's it's really interesting, really interesting.
0: Yeah. And the thing, you know, with patching, it it is critical to make sure that your systems are up to date, but it's not a one hundred percent solution, right? Like most things in life, there's a gray area, so it's not a buy. I feel like sometimes we have these conversations within the cybersecurity community about, you know, what's the one thing, or we get that question, what's the one thing that you could recommend for people to do? Uh, and certainly, patching is one of the ones that are is high on the list, right? Keeping your systems up to date, patched, secured, uh, building good baselines, and certainly that's, you know, when you're talking Center for Internet Security, that's our our bread and butter, right? Building a defendable, an easily defendable system baking security in on the ground floor. But even our controls, you know, there's we've we've minimized them. We went from 20 to 18, but there's still 18 controls that you have to have in place. There's not one thing. Uh vulnerability management is one of them, but you also have to really know what your organization looks like, what kinds of systems do you have in place? Because, you know, vulnerability, uh not vulnerability, sorry, patching gets you protection against the things that we know are out there but there's a lot of stuff we don't know and there's a lot there has been you know you you talked about evolution there's been an and i know this conversation is really about malware but there's been an evolution in the community uh i think you know especially in the criminal um space where historically cyber criminals have been very reliant on malware we're starting to see much more of a pivot towards living off the land techniques so they're leveraging the things that are supposed to be in your environment you know, administrator tools, things like PowerShell, for example, or Windows management instrumentation. These kinds of things that that are used as administrative functions, and that sometimes do look suspicious. When you see an administrator, if you get logs of of some of these admin tools and you kind of review them, some of the activity can look very suspicious. But that doesn't mean it's malicious necessarily. So it's very easy to hide malicious and suspicious traffic. Uh, and activity within those those tools so it's really critical i think you know to to not think of cybersecurity in a binary way and think well, what's the one thing i can do now o- always from a risk management perspective you do need to prioritize but you know it's it's not it's a very complicated and complex environment and there's a lot of stuff that we need to do to ensure that we're in the best possible position Uh, As an organization to fight against these kinds of things,
1: absolutely. No, I think a good threat model always helps. That's continually evolving. Uh, And to your point, is um, there is no one element of cybersecurity, and in some cases, it's it's not a solvable problem. You know, you're just trying to mitigate your risk to the to the best you can to your underlying ability, and you want to have like the controls and things of that nature in play to give you you know, the greatest probability of not being targeted and things of that nature. You're absolutely right. And uh, so that's fantastic insight there. Thank you.
0: Sure. I did Please. think of, of one thing, too, on, on yep. your evolutionary um, question, which I think is something that's not really talked about with WannaCry too much. But WannaCry was a, I think from a, you know, obviously I'm, I come from a, an intel, I purchase from an from a intelligence perspective, which a lot of times focuses not just on the on the, on the tradecraft, on the tools, but really on the, the humans, on the other side of, of the equation, right? So attackers are humans, they have missions, uh, mission objectives, they have, um, you know, sometimes those are aligned with military or economic objectives. You know, there's a whole kind of suite of things that we look at from this perspective, like, you know, who's giving the orders? What is their What are their rules of engagement? And we really think through a lot of this kind of stuff because it's very hu- very human-centered, uh, centred, a very human-centered approach to, to looking at this, right? And if we only focus on the tools, then we miss the kind of the motivations. When we think from an intel perspective, what a threat is, it's the capability tied to an opportunity, but tied specifically, all three things have to be there to be a true threat tied to an intent. And the intent is really the human side of things. So when we look at WannaCry specifically and its association with North Korea, you know, North Korea is in a position where they have been um, sanctioned by the U.S. and other Western um, states for a long time, and that they're not in a good economic position. And they have, historically, they have sent North Korean um, civilians out into the world to work and make money and send some of that money back home. Some of that money goes to the government. Some of it goes to their families. And, you know, that was their model for a long time when ransomware started to evolve and particularly with wannacry they found that you know they can do these these kinds of uh attacks and make a lot more money for a lot less investment their return on investment becomes um significantly higher doing ransomware type events and and other uh money making events using cyberspace because the the investment to to send somebody out in the world is expensive to send some code out into the world and potentially make some money is not very expensive so You know that was a big evolutionary thing, really, from the threat actor perspective. Not so much on the, you know, the, the technical side, but really in their approach to how they make money as an organization. And there's speculation, you know, some of that money ends up going into things that North Korean leader uh, leadership finds more important than cyberspace, right? Building weapons, ballistic missiles, things like that. Um, And so when you're making that much money. You do have a, a you know an opportunity to funnel that money wherever right. you want. So I think that's an interesting. No, evolutionary absolutely. Aspect.
1: You know the human side of the threat is is critical. Absolutely, and again, in some cases, even more scarier than the underlying uh, malware that's been deployed is the underlying intent, because oh, this is a continued process of developing these types of techniques. And like you say, revenue streams from doing this type of work is. Uh, it's critical to think about that so I appreciate that that's that's uh that's really good insight really good insight. What I'd like to do, Randy is move on to maybe number three combination black energy and and crash override. Could you give us uh, you know an introduction into what these uh, particular malwares were doing uh, within infrastructure?
0: sure and I, I think for black energy, most people that were around in the community and, and around you know probably around 2013, 2014. Might remember Black Energy because it was, you know, it was the most popular exploit kit at the time, and you can really exploit kits aren't really talked about today. But you can kind of think of them as as browser based trojans in a way. Um, and Black Energy was really, you know, took the the exploit kit community, if you if you will, uh, at you know, took them for a run a run for their money and you know, took it by storm. They were really the most popular at the time. Uh, it was RePED. There was Black Energy One, which was you know gaining a foothold, knocking out some other. Like Orange and Neutrino and some of these other exploit kits, and then it was repackaged as Black Energy Two, and you know made Black Energy One look uh, wimpy, you know. So everyone was like, "Oh my gosh, what what are they going to do?" Black Energy Two ends up disappearing quickly, and you know we were kind of panicking in the cybersecurity community, like just waiting for Black Energy Three to hit, and it was just going to make Black Energy Two look like a paper cut. And so we were, you know, we were kind of panicking. And at the time, I was in—I was working um, intelligence for uh, Navy, U.S. Navy Cyber Defense Operations Command, and we were tracking Black Energy very closely. And uh, we were worried because it was, a, you know, Russian criminal tool at the time. And when it disappeared, we feared that it might have been acquired by Russian intelligence. And lo and behold, that's exactly what happened. So Black Energy two disappears, and then, um, you know, really more than a year later, it resurfaces as being used in in an attack against the Ukrainian power plant. Um, that actually enabled the delivery of something called Kill Disk, which was a, a wiper. That uh, you know, really on the, that's probably what caused the most destructive uh, capability or the most destructive effects in that power plant attack was was actually Kill Disk. But Black Energy was used, deployed really as a Trojan um, to conduct espionage and steal credentials and do some further objectives. Um, but again, it was kind of like you know, similar to to Stuxnet in that. Uh, it targeted these, you know, an industrial control system. In this case, it was energy sector, so electric grid. Uh, but it was, uh, you know, it was, in this case, actually had a, an impact to beyond just, so for Stuxnet, the, the impact was just the Iranian um, enrichment program. In this case, the impact was to the local community who were, you know, there were hundreds of thousands of people without power as a result of this attack. Uh, and then, you know, a year later, Crash Override hits a different power plant, a different grid, uh, in also in Ukraine. So, Crash Override was also known as Indestroyer. That one was really interesting because, you know, we talked about the complexity of Stuxnet and being targeted to those Siemens controllers. Crash Override was complex in that it was specific to protocols that the energy grid uses, but it was actually vendor neutral. So it's really kind of interesting. So it was these these like well established uh, ICS protocols. So the sophistication really comes in the developers who built that really knew how these power plants operated, and they and they built it to be vendor independent, yet still have the impact that they wanted to have in those environments. So I think that's really crazy. And actually, if you're familiar with Drago's, they're a, a cybersecurity firm that focuses in in the operational technology and industrial controls spaces, they have some really great analysis on crash override. Uh, the uh, the CEO, Rob Lee, Rob Emily, has, uh, was part of the team that investigated the, uh, bo- I think, actually, both the, the case with Black Energy against the power plant that I'm not going to even attempt to <laughs> pronounce because I don't speak Ukrainian. Um, and then the one in Kiev, which was the crash override case. I believe he was an instant responder in both of those cases.
1: But also, too, uh, you know, some of the work that he's done in cyber threat intelligence also is very impressive. Uh, and bringing those together, I, I think, really is complementary in terms of what we're seeing. And again, going through the, um, I, again, I'll say it this way, the evolution of black energy from one through three and then obviously being acquired Again, you know, it gets to your point of um, the underlying human intent and, you know, having this privatized weapons manufacturing being brought into government to allow this to occur. And like you say, this was a, um, this was not a specific targeted attack in terms of at least crush crush override. This was, we're taking the whole thing down. You know, we don't care. Vendor agnostic, you know, being in that space. That was, uh... so again, very scary, obviously having an impact on individuals' lives and um, you know, uh, many, many without power for a long time based on, on that capability, which, uh, again, you know, we're starting to see that the uh, critical infrastructure uh, and why Scissor put such a specific emphasis on it, um, uh, it the potential for damage it is huge. And, you know, seeing these results um, makes this uh, obviously reach the list of the top five scariest uh, at this point.
0: Yeah, and I I think the one saving grace we have in this case is that most of these control systems, I can't speak for all of them, but most of them do have the ability for operators to revert to manual uh, power, right? Or manual override. So in a lot of these cases where something goes down, uh, you know, operators are able to get things back up and and functioning fairly quickly. Um, Obviously that wasn't the case in with the colonial pipeline, um, that it took a little bit more time, but the scarier thing about any of these cases, in particular, I think there's four lifeline sectors which are water, wastewater, uh, energy, transportation, and, and when we say energy, specifically electricity, um, transportation, and communications. That you know, attacks against those sectors have a much broader impact than j- attacks against you know any other individual sector, because those four sectors really power. A lot of what happens in the other, the remaining 14 of the, I'm sorry, 12 of the 16 critical sectors. So, you know, when you when you think through it from that perspective, attacks against energy have second and third order effects, that or potential second and third order effects that that go well beyond just the energy organization. For us, you know, at the ISAC, these are things that we're really really concerned about because nearly a quarter of all non-defense Control systems infrastructure, critical infrastructure, is managed at the at the municipal level. So for us, it's a critical um, area of focus. You know, there's a a lot of these systems, these energy systems, water systems, especially water and wastewater. You know, a lot of that is managed at the municipal level in the U.S. and not and beyond. But obviously, our focus is the U.S. So for us, it's you know it's the the potential impact to our membership, the potential impact to the citizens. Um, in, in that live in that area it was very, very concerning for us.
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You, you've, you, you know, the impact and the uh, thinking of the, I'll call it this way, and maybe it's not the right term, Randy, but the blast radius of these types of attacks seems to be getting bigger. And then the underlying targeting, obviously, is where there's the biggest impact that we have with such an attack and such a capability and then providing then protections through the work that... Uh, Robert uh, or Rob M. Lee, uh, you know, from Dragos is doing, uh, and some of the research that he's providing to the industry and, uh, you know, really trying to build those protections. But like you say, having the, the, the ability to move to manual, um, you know, at some point it it seems like that gets phased out and we just move to digital and, uh, it's, um, it's interesting, right? Uh, Because once we get to that point is, uh, all bets are off.
0: Yeah, that's. that's oh, I, I don't know if I want to be in the industry when that happens. I might, I might right. pivot to another career field at that point. I don't think my right. my heart can handle exactly. that.
1: Exactly. Okay, let's move then on to uh, number four. I want to think about TrickBot, but then also in combinations with maybe Ryuk, Conti, and even Emotet. So let's start with TrickBot and and let's see where we go. Uh, so could you give us an overview of uh, TrickBot and why it's on this list?
0: Sure. So TrickBot, and you know, really, when I think through TrickBot, I do think of you know those those other um, tools that you mentioned because TrickBot, you know, essentially. Enabled the delivery of some of those other things, which I I think you know had the more wide ranging impact. But TrickBot's basically a, a descendant of the Zeus banking Trojan, which I which is our number five. So we'll get to Zeus. Uh, but uh, but tied you know a lot of times when people talk about TrickBot, they tie it specifically to to Dyer um, Trojan, also known as I think it was Direza, Dyer, Direza something like that. Um, and you know, ultimately Dyer is a descendant of Zeus, so. Um, you know, kind of the grandfather, I guess, who is the grandfather of TrickBot. Um, but the the funny thing with, with TrickBot is, you know, yes, it's, it was initially designed to be a banking Trojan, but it's multi, it's a modular um, capability. So it has all these modules, multi multi capabilities um, and functions that extend well beyond a standard banking Trojan. And I don't know that it was the first that was, you know, that did that, but it was certainly one that made it easy for cyber criminals to kind of plug and play whatever capability they wanted to use uh, via TrickBot, you know, from a delivery mechanism standpoint, you could use TrickBot to to conduct traditional, you know, banking operations, financial theft. Um, you could use it to deliver ransomware. Um, you could use it in Bitcoin mining operations. There was all sorts of stuff you could do with it. And for us, uh, the MSI MSISEC specifically, in about mid 2019, we saw a massive increase in in correlation between TrickBot and Ryuk ransomware. So that was like uh, we actually put a uh, alert uh, together. We put a blog out about you know TrickBot and how it's being correlated with Ryuk, and you know really around that time period, SLTTs were just getting slammed with Ryuk ransomware cases, attacks against managed service providers that SLTTs use, and you know so that's one of the reasons why for me TrickBot and in particular TrickBot and Ryuk together, and then later Emotet were really you know a big uh, f- kind of a scary factor from the from the SLTT perspective
1: definitely definitely you know I, I may be right or wrong but I always thought of trick But being like the Swiss army knife that would uh cut into every element of the miter attack framework in some form or fashion or could be modularized to do that you know it was um you know created in such a way and, and then utilized um to really be pervasive and uh A lot of capability, you know? And I think you're seeing that, um, you know, the the malware authors being, um, you know, listening to the customer in a lot of cases. Oh, we need these types of functions. It'd be great if it could do this. And, you know, I've got, you know, these other elements that I'd love to be part of this and uh, really seem to, uh, again, maybe right or wrong, starting to get into this uh, customer element of building new functions and features. Um, Any truth to that, Randy?
0: Yeah, you know, I think you're actually uh, onto something that's really interesting. We, that's, you know, going back to the, your question earlier about evolution, that's something that we've also witnessed is there has been a significant evolution in the cyber criminal underground from, you know, what used to be very much kind of viewed as competing organizations to now it's much more of a, you know, criminal or, or, you know, crime crimeware as a service. And we see that certainly in ransomware where you have developers who then sell access to their tool to other groups for a percentage of the profit. Um, you do see that feedback. There, re- there literally are customer service portals for some criminals to go back to the developers and say, hey, we would like the following or we need assistance here. They essentially have help desks, you know cyber criminal help desks uh, and you know code requests and RFIs and you know, RFPS and things you could submit to you know, hey, I'd love to have this feature in, in the platform and, and you know there's training capability. I mean it really is it's it's a business at this point. Um, as shady as it is, as, you know, morally and ethically uh, tainted as it might be, it's really a a business model for a lot of these criminals. That's how they make their money.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So let's move on to then uh, the grandfather, Zeus. Um, Why is that on the list? Why is that important for us to identify? Well,
0: Zeus has a... I have a personal connection to Zeus because I was actually hit with uh, as part of the the massive you know banking Trojan fraud scheme that at the time resulted in the largest singular financial theft. Um, this was about two thousand five or two thousand six or so. I mean, infected millions of computers around the world, impacted a lot of individuals. It wasn't just um, organizations. But what was interesting with Zeus, a lot of a lot of these attacks that we've been talking about target organizations. Zeus targeted organizations and then stole from individuals, in addition to those businesses and companies, uh, which is part of the reason why it ended up with the you know the largest financial theft at the time. But we're talking billions of dollars um, stolen as part of the Zeus campaign. And I was actually you know specifically impacted. There was a, a card uh, like a, a PCI vendor, a payment card industry vendor that was compromised. Uh, I can't remember the name of them off the top of my head now, Uh, but they were compromised. They did go public that they were compromised. Um, And I had used my credit card at a a couple different stores that used this vendor. Um, I think there was like a sporting, maybe sports authority or something like that, and Target and some grocery stores in the the New York area um, that were all used, uh, used this vendor. And at some point, my credit card number was compromised and so i had you know thousands of dollars taken out of my account and i didn't it took me a while to notice it luckily my my bank actually picked up on it first and stopped some of those payments but you know there are a lot of folks who uh who you know didn't notice that and saw thousands of of dollars taken out of their account and you know unfortunately for a lot of folks a thousand dollars can you know can mean whether or not they pay their rent that month or whether they put food on the table um, so it seems like maybe not a lot of money for a business. It's it's crucial uh, and critical for, for individuals to not have $1,000 taken Absolutely. out of their account.
1: Absolutely. No, I completely agree. And it's one of those that it not affects just business, uh, to your point, but it is then the specific individual targeted as part of this that makes it... Um, you know, an incredibly impactful, uh, and you gave a, a wonderful point there, but now I think in a lot of cases, um, you know, they made it personal with you, and so, <laughs> you, you you know, you're going to, we're going to make this, <laughs> uh, 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 target this. It also, um, does it have relationship to CryptoLocker? Uh, was this a vector for CryptoLocker installations?
0: So Zeus is the, you know, the granddaddy of, I mean, if you think of literally any banking <laughs> trojan today, um, and you know, really banking Trojans in general are tied to what we're seeing today with ransomware cases, sure. right? So you can argue, you can pretty much draw a line from anything that's stealing money today, whether it's via ransomware, uh, whether it's via uh, uh, holding... Uh, so some a lot of people think of ransomware as just encrypting data and holding it for ransom. There's, there's other ways in which uh, money is made, you know, from... Uh, from cyber means there's there's a uh, exfiltrating data and holding that for ransom. So you know, pay me or I'm going to release this to the public. Uh, those kinds of things. So almost more like extortion schemes. Uh, you know, there's uh, wiper type malware. So we I talked Kill Disk earlier. Kill Disk is another one that was actually um, we talked you know kind of evolution of, of changes. But Kill Disk was initially meant as a wiper, but it was seen later in ransomware cases where it was pay me or I'm gonna delete all of your data or I'm gonna delete, you know, significant portions of your data. So um, anything along those lines can really, you could probably draw a line back to Zeus somehow, right? Because all of those, uh, all those cases, whether you're talking CryptoLocker, uh, Ryu, TrickBot, uh, Dyer, like all of these, they really, you know, some of them even Dyer, I mean, it's like a reuse of Zeus code. Right. I mean, it's not, it, there's not even a question. I mean, it's just, <laughs> Literally, chunks of code lifted uh, and and repurposed. Exactly. so so
1: there is the the family tree element here <laughs> of these uh, of the yeah. at least the bank intrusion yeah. side of things. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, let's talk about then uh, a little bonus. Um, the Morris worm. What are your thoughts there?
0: So the Morris worm, you know it's it's obviously before my time in in the field. Uh, But it's interesting because, you know, the Morris worm wasn't the first virus or even the first worm, um, but it was the first. This is like 1988. It was the first worm to be distributed via the Internet. And, you know, historically, actually, uh, the guy who developed it was a college student uh, at Cornell University at the time here in New York, in Ithaca, New York, um, Robert Morris. He was the first person convicted of a felony for a computer-related crime in the U.S., so it, you know it's it's interesting in that, um, and I, I want to say he's a professor now, or he became a professor much later, but I don't think it was at Cornell. I want to say he went to MIT, and I, if I'm not mistaken, he actually launched the Morris Worm from MIT as like an obfuscation technique to make it seem like you know like it didn't originate at Cornell. Um, But I think the thing that makes the Morris worm so scary, one, is the massive amount of distribution via the internet, of course. But, but the second is that uh, he didn't build in any any kind of uh, uh, check, right? uh, Not a reputation. I was thinking reputation check, but like a uh, a check against whether or not the worm had been installed already on that system. So it basically replicated unchecked across all these systems and created this massive denial of service because it just kept spreading, even if it had already hit a system, it it reinfected that system. So some systems were reinfected, you know, dozens or hundreds of times, you know, effectively causing a denial of service. And so that's one of the things that's scary is that, you know, once you let something like that out into the world, you you really, you don't, you can't control it anymore. Actually kind of brings us back to Stuxnet and that ultimately Stuxnet was a worm and Yes, it was specifically targeting those uh, centrifuges at at one location. Specifically, it was the Natanz plant um, in Iran, but it did get onto the internet and it did replicate and it did infect, you know, hundreds of, I think it was hundreds of thousands of computers at some point. Luckily, it didn't do much to them because it was designed specifically to target centrifuges. Most people don't have (laughs) centrifuges on their their home (laughs) network, you know, (laughs) so thankfully, you know, you weren't seeing pieces of your centrifuge fly off and, you know. Go through your kitchen window or something, but um, but you know it's it's important to note though that you know once you put some of that stuff out into the wild, you really don't right. control it anymore. Right,
1: exactly, exactly. No, good, good point there, Randy. This brings us to uh, the concluding part, and this is the Atkinson Nine Question. So I've got nine questions, uh, simple questions to ask you. Um, Want to get your perspective? How's that sound?
0: I love it. Let's do it.
1: Perfect. Okay.
0: So question one, what is your favorite CIS control? Probably a cop out to say all of them, right? I got to pick one. <laughs> um, I'll go with number five, account control.
1: Okay. Perfect. Perfect.
0: What is your least
1: favorite part of your profession?
0: Uh, this is a good one. Uh, I'd say probably lack of diversity uh, in the mm. in the field.
1: Perfect.
0: Of professionals. Why do you like professionals? Yeah.
1: Sure. Absolutely.
0: Why do you like cybersecurity? It's always evolving. It's very challenging.
1: Yeah. Why don't you like cybersecurity?
0: It's always evolving. <laughs> Can I say that? <laughs>
1: you just did. <laughs> <laughs> what source of data, log, or
0: telemetry do you love? Hmm. Probably, I'd say malware samples and You know, if I can't get a sample, then Sysmon logs.
1: Perfect, perfect. What is the biggest waste of time in cybersecurity?
0: Oh, this one's easy. Block listing, especially, you know, IPs and domains. We got it backwards. We We need to move away from just blocking the bad.
1: Perfect, perfect. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt?
0: I would be a professional musician.
1: Awesome. What profession would you not like to do?
0: Ooh. Um Middle School teacher.
1: Perfect. <laughs> oddly and oddly then, specific, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. Now, last question. When you reach the end of your career, how do you want to be remembered?
0: I would like to be remembered as the Indiana Jones of cyber.
1: Awesome, that's cool. That's a really great answer. I like that. I, I like most that.
0: people don't uh, uh, think through this, as they, you know, they um, they get in this field. They think it's a very technical field, and it is. But my academic background really started in anthropology, so I've always kind of, oh. and it was because of Indiana Jones. So I have this strange obsession with uh, Indiana Jones. So. That's how I want to go
1: fantastic. out. Fantastic! That's awesome. That's really cool. That's really cool. Well, Randy, this has been a fantastic discussion. We're going to have you back. We, I think I've got to delve into this Indiana Jones thing, but we're going to have you back <laughs> on the show. We've got to. Um, but that Anytime. was... Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Your insights your, uh, and your knowledge in this space. Fen- phenomenal. What a great discussion.
0: I've tricked you all into thinking uh, <laughs> I know what I'm talking about.
1: <laughs> fantastic. Um, Well, that's it for today's show. We hope you've enjoyed the discussion and remember to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss a single episode. You can also follow CIS on social media for the latest cybersecurity news and updates. Until next time, I'm Sean Atkinson. Thanks for listening.
0: Thank you for listening to the show today. If you are interested in learning more about how to grow your cybersecurity program, the free tools available to help you on your journey or to get involved with the CIS volunteer community, visit our website at cisecurity.org. Start secure and stay secure.